A, another episode of the Fox Den, and I'm here with Julie Baker, M-A-L-M-F-T, so licensed marriage and family therapist. It's good to, yeah. good to be with you, Julie. Thank you for having me. Of course. So tell us a little bit about, as a fellow clinician, your the name of your private practice. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, so I decided to choose a name that was inspirational and may inspire people to take that first step for themselves and their mental health. Uh, So the name of my private practice is Engage Today. It's a private practice located in Tampa Palms, Florida. Um, And I have uh, experience in doing CBT with teens and young adults as my primary emphasis. That's awesome. Um, have you all, have you been a native of Florida? Like, have you always lived there? Are you a native or you transplant? Where are you from? I'm actually originally from the Sacramento area and I lived in the Los Angeles area while going to school and starting my career. Um, and then I moved over here to the uh, Tampa Bay area. What brought you? Uh, career opportunities for my husband and I. Yeah, there you go. I'm originally from the South, so the story was the opposite for me. I uh, grew up in South Carolina and uh, a little bit in Georgia, spent some time there, and then came out to Colorado, which is out here in the West, as you know. So Yeah, what led you to Colorado? Um, when I was still a teenager, my dad's job moved out here and I was in that phase where I, where I thought, oh, this is, you know, new, exciting opportunity, um, small, kind of tired of small town life. So went to college out here and grad school. So yeah, yeah. pretty, pretty good metropolitan area. Then you must've liked it. Yeah. One of the reasons that I wanted to have you on is because of your passion for CBT and cognitive behavior therapy to any listeners that, that don't know. Um, I talked a little bit about this with Paul Dominic back in the day on the podcast we were just talking about, the stoicism mm-hmm. one. And I think that's probably a good place to start. What do you think are some myths that people have about CBT or some reductionistic ways that people have looked at it that are just wrong? Mm-hmm. I think when people attempt to do CBT in a reductionistic way, it could come across as overly clinical, mm-hmm. uh, cold, too emphasize, emphasizing of science, um, right. and not making any room for emotions, uh, and particularly the first wave with REBT, um, it's, that can sometimes be interpreted as um, kind of rebuking people and telling them that they're thinking wrong, which can be sometimes offensive. Yeah. Um, but, you know, even, um, you know, in, in the second wave with, uh, Aaron Beck and, uh, Judith Beck, um, her, her book actually has a very like warm hearted, um, approach to CBT. And that really gets to the core of it, where it's integrating everything that's effective, I think is the way that CBT, um, operates now. Um, and not everybody realizes that there could be a strong emphasis in on values, like an act. Um, and there is a component of behaviorism, but that is to help people get results more quickly. And the structure is actually what um, helps to get res- results more quickly than in kind of a meandering therapy session too. Although I do, uh, uh, you know, definitely appreciate and endorse humanistic approaches too. You don't have to mince words because when it comes to 
human that's a nice term humanistic therapy that's great person-centered therapy is another term for it because it was like client-centered and then it was person-centered you know we're referring to the legacy of Carl Rogers yeah Carl Rogers it's funny because I've got this co-worker he's like a fanboy of Rogers and I and I even in grad school was not because I I kind of imbibed the material read it and thought this is it Mm, okay well you can do a lot with it with the right sort of questions and 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 reflection but I, I think it's a necessary but not sufficient bedrock for clinical work to have that sort of uh, but positive regard the congruence there between therapist and client um and, and just that that capacity for active listening it's great things they're they're great essential assets but I believe that you have to have more. And so I'm a bit on the other side where probably where, where you are, where you have that respect for the clinical approach of person-centered style, but also, as you said, the meandering. It's interesting. It's like if you're a great artist, you can go off the sort of fundamentals of art, break the rules, and do that well. With therapy if you are a great practitioner of anything where you stay focused, you can break the rule. You can, you can go off a little bit, but it's, if it's too easy to be meandering, especially for early clinicians, they should probably really stick to some sort of modality that has steps in it. I think because it's too easy to kind of fall into the, uh, just a meandering session of, Oh, well that sounds bad. Oh, how does that feel? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes a manualized approach does give early clinicians um, a little bit of a, a nudge that helps their professional skills. Um, yeah. And, and CBT, yeah, CBT is great for that. Um, I know that people, so you hit on one of the big things that's a myth about it, that it can, that it's somewhat robotic or disrespectful of clinical relationships. So someone has to, I mean, to play the other side, if you're, being very abrasive or viewing each cognition as something to really argue over, then it's probably not being delivered in the right way and the, the empathic foundation isn't there. So do you have any do you have any examples of when you've heard like a colleague talk about using it in a way that was not helpful? Um I I've heard you know, some people say, well, you know, if I wanted to do CBT, I could just learn that from a book. Um, but I think that would be a great book <laughs> to read. Um, and um, let's see, there, there is an impression that it's too imposing of the clinical values of the, of the therapist or that it yeah. may be not giving credit to the person as the expert in their own lives because it you know postures you as the expert right um, and then that may create an undesired power differential if you're not aware of that and help you know flatten the power differential by sharing and you know receiving feedback and and giving it back yeah them. well i think a lot of things yeah and people can be very um <laughs> People can self-disclose too much, early clinicians, and people in general, therapists, I mean. Mm -hmm. Okay, so here's, here's the example. There's an article by Aldo Pucci Saidi. When cognitive behavioral therapy fails, 
the five most common reasons. Hmm. One of so number five, the fifth reason is the therapist practices CBT superficially. So an example is if someone walks past a group of people and they begin laughing, most people's thought would be they're laughing at me. So instead of saying there's no evidence they were laughing at you and there are other possible explanations, mm-hmm. okay, true CBT would address the underlying assumption, it is terrible when people laugh at me. Mm. I mean, okay, that's... Hey, that's 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 an interesting place to start. I read that and I thought, hmm, well, that's kind of bizarre. I mean, I have to respect CBT clinicians because that's a difficult place to dive in, to take that whole schema of someone's self-worth and say, well, what is the big deal mm. if someone, like that's that level of resilience where, and I think our, our founders here in the psych, psychological community have a lot to say about this a lot to do with the creation of this stuff. Like everyone doesn't have that level of stoicism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, are you aware? So you mentioned REBT earlier. Yeah. So, I think that would be most in line with the first wave REBT style of CBT. Um, mm-hmm. Then I would characterize the second wave as more Beckian and then uh, third wave more, uh, like act and Stephen Hayes kind of style. And those are just a few clinicians of many contributors. Uh, I think, you know, saying, you know, something like, well, is it, you know, awful to be laughed at or what's so awful about being laughed at? Um, That's a bold way to start it. And it's definitely not the, you know, complete part of the, the conversation is not over with that. Uh, That would be sort of a message of don't feel, you know, Yeah, so then if that was a real question, then you would have them think about what it would mean to them if Mm -hmm. someone was laughing at them. What would be so awful about that to really think about it? And it may be an under, it might tap into an underlying core belief like um, I'm unlovable and unlikable. uh, Therefore, if I want to, um, have any semblance of social support, I cannot risk, you know, being in a position of being mocked. Um, and right. so I need to avoid all, all possible contexts uh, in yeah. which somebody might look down on me or laugh at me. Yeah. Um, and exactly. so that would kind of highlight it that that's what they really care about. And it would be helpful for them to have more people in their lives, giving them that evidence or them noticing the evidence from others that they're likable and lovable and thinking about themselves, you know, what characteristics and what evidence that they have seen, you know, in their past doesn't have to be consistently present. They themselves believe themselves to be lovable and likable. Yeah, absolutely. That's so incredibly true. So do you have any favorite? So before we started rolling, I think we were talking about this, this topic itself of CBT and who you look up to. And you were talking about Aaron Beck. I'm guessing that style is pretty humanistic. Mm-hmm. I know somebody who, who a psychologist who met Beck and said he really lived up to his um, reputation. He's so nice. So that's great. That's wonderful. Um, is there, what do you think about Stephen Hay? What do you think about ACT? Cause I know a little bit more about ACT. I, I find it delightfully weird. and um, Tell us about that. 
Well, the first, uh, when I first looked up Stephen Hayes, I saw his TED talk where he was sitting at the front of the stage and kind of freaking out a little bit and then kind of sh displaying, you know, the usually private phenomenon of somebody beating themselves up. And then he kind of uh, then started talking about cognitive diffusion techniques. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Like, and, and that is based in relational frame theory, which from what I know of it, um, it kind of posits that language and misunderstandings in language is one of the primary contributing factors to uh, human suffering. And so he'll do something like uh, interventions of having somebody repeat over and over again, milk uh, or some other word until it becomes unusual. The way, and then you kind of recognize those are just formations of the mouth, sounds and lines written on paper. Um, it loses the meaning if you repeat it rapidly. Over yes. time. You can do the same thing uh, if you're calling yourself stupid. Uh, like, oh, you're so stupid. Well, you could, rather than saying milk, 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 say stupid, 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 stupid. And then it takes the sting out of it. It kind of shows you that it's not de definitely reality. There's thoughts in your head. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's funny. So I was at a, a training for behavioral activation therapy, uh, ACT, so acceptance and commitment therapy, and two days of DBT training, which I already was teaching in DBT groups. So I already knew my way around that stuff. Yeah, but um, it was good to get another perspective on it um, and hear what this much more experienced trainer made sure to cover in her skills training groups because you have to pick and choose because if it's a skills training group and it's not full fidelity dbt you have you can't possibly get to all the handouts so the dialectical behavior therapy manual obviously i'm talking about and all the the handouts and just gargantuan have you used dbt before ever um i've i've done some surface level groups yeah on DBT um, in residential care. So I'm familiar yeah. with some of the 23 uh, skills and Dear Man. Yeah. and Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's the awesome. Distraction techniques and emotional regulation. Um, I, I love it. Um, but it is very involved too. Um, it is very involved when it's full fidelity model and you have to do diary cards and all that. And that can be very intimidating to a lot of clinicians and to a lot of clients. Yeah. So the good news is that a lot of the dialectical behavior therapy theory and individual exercises, like you said, I mean, a little more credit than surface level. I'm sure you used it in a great way. And it's stuff that is very compatible with other theories. It's essentially the idea that emotions will come up Mm -hmm. Don't argue with them. Be mindful because there are a whole modules about mindfulness and deal with them there and look at the situation sort of from this perspective of anything in the moment you can do to withstand it and to be in your body and notice your emotions and not act out on them. So there's a lot more to it, obviously, than that. But mm -hmm. so, yeah, the milk exercise, the trainer had someone do that. <laughs> It's a, well, yeah, my coworker, I, uh, Love it. <laughs> I, I didn't volunteer to do that. I wasn't going to sit there because I knew what was coming. She's like, hey, does anyone know the milk exercise? I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and repeat this word. So <laughs> not going to raise my hand on that one. Oh. And I didn't. So yeah. it's cute. It's fine. I mean, that's a very dial. That's a very, excuse me, desensitization method of mm -hmm. a, a word no longer having its meaning. I mean, mm -hmm. So that's fine. I mean, my, my bias would be 
well, where does that go after you're done doing it? Like the word's going to come again. The person's going to be upset because it's not the word that's bothering them. It's the shame in one of their fear or, or circuits in the brain. They're having an emotional physiological reaction because shame is a, is an instilled sort of emotional experience people get. And it's adaptive sort of our guilt and shame let us know if we're socially close to being outcast, which is very adaptive. Unfortunately, when it's, it's like a smoke detector that's too sensitive, right? It's like, well, it's probably a way to deal with that beyond just kind of desensitizing the word, which is, I think, where a lot of CBT stuff, how would you deal with shame on a CBT level? Let's just go into that. I am glad you asked. So yeah, um, well, I figured. Yeah. First, first up, um, you would want to explain how CBT works. You would explain the cognitive model where you don't just have a situation happen and then experience an emotion. There's always a conscious or unconscious appraisal that happens in between. And um, so your thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and bodily sensations are all interconnected as well as related to the outside environment. Uh, so that could be related to somebody having shame and also your life experiences over time, they build into core beliefs. So oftentimes core beliefs that somebody has about themselves, if they're more in the positive range, it could be, I am good, I am lovable, I am competent. Um, and if they something you know, happened where they had too many negative influences or praised things in an excessively negative way over time and it compounded, um, they may have negative core beliefs of I am bad or I am unlovable, or I am incompetent. Um, and so I would think that shame pertains to the, the core belief of I am bad. Um, and so usually, once you can locate what kind of core belief is present, usually people have a mixture of positive and negative ones, um, then if you wanted to try to shift it towards a more neutral range or even a positive core belief, you would examine evidence for and against them. Absolutely. Yeah, so if somebody was ashamed, um, they might engage in a lot of lying or they might hide things from other people. Um, and so you wanna you know, draw that out and then maybe a careful, you know, slow and delicate process you know, for, for someone with shame because they may be hesitant to open up entirely about it. Um, you, know, you would kind of look you know, where that came from what were the situations in their life that inspired that sense of shame or feeling like they're bad um, or need to have an excessive amount of guilt about who they are um, and because it came from somewhere. Uh, and so it's worth validating that, but also looking, are there times in their life where that hasn't been 100% true 100% of the time? Has anybody ever said anything good about them? Have they ever been, you know, happy or content with themselves even for a fleeting second and then maybe making a list compiling evidence about shame and also I think um, I can't help but think about deconstruction like looking at the sources of shame the messages that may be connected with it and Bingo. Bingo. Are, are they valid um, yeah. do they agree with them is it fair for them to beat themselves up based off of those standards that they are perceiving that it, I mean, that is just such a, a wonderful encapsulation of it. Um, when you identify, I mean, the thing is, people can can talk about CBT reductionistically, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But even in in the realm that I 
operate in of trauma therapy for people in limbic mode. So when they're not in their frontal lobe, able to rationally discuss this stuff, mm-hmm. and they're in more of a limbic fight or flight, taking their positions as fat. What did you say? Flooded. Exactly. When they're in an emotionally um, volatile state, even so with EMDR, you get a thought that, you, the person feels is true. And the language we use is very interesting because we say, well, what is something you, um, what is a negative thought about yourself that's associated with, and then the target memory. So if it's like that you had a car wreck, like I'll never be safe in a car again, or uh, it was my fault. I could, I should have done more things, something like that when obviously it couldn't have been true. It's like, and we, and we clarify people are like, well, I know that it's not my fault. It's like, okay, but what do you feel? So we get that fusion with thoughts out in the open and that's yeah. CBT right there. So anyone who has kind of a negative view of CBT, what well, do you use it though? And if you do, then it's a little hypocritical to be judgmental of it. And I think everyone can say, well, there's more that's needed. Well, okay. Dependent on your population, right? So do you work with people who are trauma survivors in your practice? What are your, have, do you see people who, yeah. Yeah. I, throughout my clinical experience, uh, for one reason or another, I, I seem to stumble across a lot of people that have experienced sexual trauma. Um, so I, I feel like I've developed skills to help them reduce self blame, um, which often is a common characteristic, but, um, n- not, not necessarily helpful in most cases. Um, you know, whoever did something that violated them, it's always their responsibility to have made a different choice. Um, that's a little bit of track. What was the original question? No, you're fine. I just wanted to know what you, if you use trauma-focused CBT or if you work with trauma survivors and how you see that working. Yeah, I have used TFCBT primarily with children. Um, and yeah, I love taking them through that um, path. Um, giving them that individualized attention and caring um, and that desensitizing aspect of reminding them of the trauma so that they habituate to it and it, it removes some of the charge. Um, talking nice. about the triangle. Uh, yeah, <laughs> some of the EMDR training, it, it's in there. Um, I'm just waiting until I'm, you know, approximately as good as Francine Shapiro before I offer it <laughs> again. Yeah. Um, oh, did you get a, what kind of training did you get? Uh, EMDR half through CSU uh, Fullerton. Oh, well, that's absolutely amazing. So you did the full basic training. Yes. Okay. Well, you're, listen, it's, I had a coworker who was very um, cautious about it because she was so scared about doing anything wrong. And, and with EMDR, I mean, you're not going to hurt someone. The, the worst that would happen, you, you can if you, if you re-traumatize them, but there's so many steps along the way where you can cut that, the processing, mm-hmm. and you'll know the difference between a sort of overwhelmed processing versus the weeping that comes from therapy that's indicative of a catharsis and a realization that it's over and it was painful and something was taken from you, but it's done, right? There's such a difference in the quality of tearfulness and emotional release there. Yeah. Yeah. If, if something went wrong with the process, you could always, you know, close for the day and lead them in a cl- uh, containment exercise and um, help with the somatic quieting and just be a therapeutic presence with them. And I know the process, I just don't have the scripts memorized. So that's the main thing holding me back. 
you know, that's such a good thing to tell that scripts. You can have that on your computer in front of you. I mean, there's nothing wrong. You don't have to memorize that. Oh my gosh. So few people that have done EMDR memorize that at first. I like, I like memorizing stuff like that, but that's not for everybody. A lot of people would read straight from the protocol. That's what you have to do until you really internalize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to internalize it without the practice because I don't want to subject somebody to me fumbling or, or having to take a minute to go locate the right well, thing. You're very high conscientiousness then. That's, a, that's an easy tell for that. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. Well, well, who are three you. people that you would want to meet living or dead? Let's jump into the Fox Den question. Let's do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I was thinking about this because I noticed that is something you tend to ask. Um, I've gotten some wild ass answers too, which I love. Yeah, like what? <laughs> um, well, on one of them I got, I'm not going to say this and get demonetized, but we could say some 20th century fascist leader who of uh, Germany. That was one. Um, oh, yeah, really? got that answer. Well, like was, understand what went wrong or something? Uh, yes, essentially. Yeah. Um, I, I got Terrence. At the right time to influence him. Like yeah. right through down the paintbrush, be like, hey, listen here. <laughs> like, you keep trying. Oh, <laughs> like, it's the art got, stuff. I'm from the future, you've got a great, like, you know, career. Oh, that's as a pretty good. Ahead of you. Oh, you got some jokes. Okay, okay. I like that. Another answer was two recent guests both said Terrence McKenna, who is like a, a psychonaut character that's very popular among alternative circles. Do you know who I'm talking about, Terrence McKenna? <laughs> I'm not familiar with what a psychonaut is. Okay, I'll explain that. Okay, so he was a Terrence McKenna, American ethnobotanist. So he was a mystic. <laughs> he even says on his Wikipedia, psychonaut. That's really funny. So um, a psychonaut is someone who, okay, I'll just tell you this statement and you can, you can kind of um, uh, probably extrapolate from there, but we'll get into it if we want an advocate for the responsible use of naturally occurring psychedelic plants. So usually a psychonaut is someone who pushes the bounds of perception and uses LSD. It's a fancy term for advocate for, like I just read, LSD, MDMA, someone who goes on those kind of trips themselves. Um, very. Uh, Are those plant-based or manufactured? What? Are those plant-based or manufactured? Like, are they talking about any sort of hallucinogen? That's a good. That's a good point. So, psilocybin mushrooms would probably be one. Which I've never, I've never done those. I can't have anybody look. I'm not going to have anybody do that stuff and think that I like. I don't condone it. If people people do what they what they do, that's fine. But I have not done that. There's some people on Twitter. If you spend any time there, that talk a lot about mushrooms and then microdosing on acid. Um, another example of a non-plant-based, non-hallucinogenic experience that someone would do to push the bounds of their perception would be a sensory deprivation tank. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that causes people to start experiencing different forms of consciousness to sometimes. So McKenna and Timothy Leary are also kind of names that get brought up a lot. Timothy Leary being someone who in the 60s said, tune in, drop out, drop, you know, that whole mantra. So people who are really into human consciousness and the limits of it, but not only from a neuroscientific perspective, but from an experiential one as well, would be my sort of take from that. I can see how that would appeal to someone to 
experience something entirely different than usual ways of processing and yeah. experiencing life. It's yeah. really funny because yesterday I got in the mail this packet from a Boulder psychiatrist. It was amazing. It was for this guy who does ketamine infusions in Boulder. Are you aware of what those are? Yeah, that's kind of an experimental uh, treatment for severe depression. Yep, it, it is. It's like it's quite the cash cow for clinicians who choose to partake. Uh, so I'm a little skeptical. Uh, yeah. Well, the only psychiatrists can offer it, but clinicians sit there with the client. What are, are they doing that stuff in Florida? I I believe they are. That's awesome. So three people living a day. We got, I got sidetracked <laughs> there, which is fine. I knew you're gonna come back to that. Okay, oh, of so, course I was. My my rough draft of my list of people. I think I would be really curious to meet Siddhartha Gautama uh, or the Buddha and have a chat, figure out what he was actually, you know, saying, learn from him, maybe absorb some of that wisdom. Um, I'm really interested in Albert Camus, uh, kind of a existentialist thinker um, that really focused on, you know, you know, the fact of mortality is as a trade-off in living, and um, you know, it's kind of like an intellectual death to try to attach yourself to denial or not thinking mm. about it ever, or um, it, in his view, arguing that, you know, that religious ideas uh, of like living beyond that, um, that that's not facing it. And to face it, usually you come to the conclusion, okay, I'm alive, it's limited. Um, I, that means I'm going to make the most of it. Um, so that's a really uh, fascinating view that I, I'm very, intrigued by um and i try to to um learn more as i go and just in the spirit of the times i was thinking like who else i need to throw a woman in there <laughs> um you know and uh i think i'd be interested in talking to alexandria ocasio cortez um because i want to figure out you know what would be helpful for you know action for people and the country moving forward definitely a, a an eclectic mix there i know people have said buddha before so that's that's a I good think one. he said it before <laughs> he's what oh i thought you that, i might have mixed up who was speaking but i thought that it was you mentioning it um but i agree yeah yeah um well i would have thought so i did i mention buddha in one of the episodes you may have yeah well of course i mean <laughs> Well, look, when you look at it, I'm not going to get too political, but I mean, you look at his level of wealth and you look at how he still managed to see human suffering and, and become enlightened in spite of his, his massive insulation from mm -hmm. suffering. Mm -hmm. And then you see people who don't even have that modicum of wealth, but who are so insulated due to technology and our rampant narcissistic epidemic in this culture, because it is one. I mean, yeah. let's pivot. I think we have a culture of narcissism. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think, I think compared to the rest of the world that's focused on daily living stuff and our kind of psychiatric navel gazing of like what, what we can get immediately. I mean, it, it's a, it's a hyper-focused thing to certain affluent Western um, cultures, right? But I don't, what are your opinions? Do you think that there's kind of an, I mean, I think that pivoted, I think like we have this bifurcation of, of, a lot of people who have severe trauma and then some, some narcissistic stuff. And they're not always mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm really fascinated by the topic of narcissism, especially uh, narcissistic abuse okay. um, in family units. And I think, you know, cultural um, emphasis on narcissism in general, it's worth having a conversation about for sure. Um, but I feel like it depends on where you look. If you're looking for narcissistic evidence of people's behavior, you might see it a little more often um, yeah. than if you didn't. Or if you were really involved in communities that were practically the opposite. Um, you know, the, yeah, if you yeah. open Instagram, though, you might you know, have a better chance of seeing things like that. Or you mentioned uh, being on Twitter. I'm hardly ever on Twitter because I know that sometimes things get kind of feisty in there. Um, but I'm sure there's, it's chock full of valuable things as well. I have a no argument, a very strict policy. If, if people want to engage in some kind of an argument, I don't engage in that at all. I'm not yeah. interested in it. And I think that's where a lot of people go wrong on Twitter. Famous people, people who, ha or, or even clinical advocates. I've seen people who have a pretty good reputation. And even on Facebook, people will put things that are just obscenely ridiculous and then fight about them or fight with people. And it just it isn't worth, it isn't worth that. I don't think you're going to change anyone's mind arguing at them because they're going to get go into defense mode. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just what people do. Yeah. And especially as therapists, we have to know that because we're helping talk clients through that, through very sensitive issues. And they're going to get upset about it if we approach it in the wrong way, which is where that person-centered orientation arises, where that, where that comes in, where we have to utilize that. And so people kind of can regress to communicating ways that are unhelpful, but that in the moment feel good. So, yeah. yeah. Um, it, you know, I think Twitter can be an amazing place to collect a lot of ideas and look at people's exchange of truths and as long as you don't cognitively fuse with it, as long as you don't cognitively fuse with your own perspectives on there. Cause that's where I met most of the people on my podcast that I've interviewed, like Paul Dominic. He is a Twitter bro who does a lot about stoicism. He's really passionate about it, more passionate about it than some therapists I've met, which is pretty wild. And people can be self-taught a lot of good stuff. Yeah. So just about uh, picking up the book and reading and learning and seeking out knowledge. Um, yeah, that's the truth. So coronavirus tips, which I, I mean, let's, let's move into that. There's really not a good sure. transition into that, except maybe when you talked about the spirit of the times, I mean, that's yeah. definitely one. Well, I was just thinking like you talking about how we live in a culture of narcissism. I feel like <laughs> the, the electronification of socializing may contribute to that like not seeing people in person often enough to feel connected and so it draws you towards you know more you know surface level social media at where you're kind of saying something indirectly to a lot of people at once then that kind of brings in you know attempting to have sort of a universal appeal and so being, you know, your statements are not tailored to each individual person that you have a relationship with, but it's more the other that you're speaking to. And so you're monitoring what you say to be very highly socially desirable um, statements. And then it also tends to prioritize power structures that we live in and social status markers. And so a lot of people really up that part of themselves, what they wish to convey as their image as opposed to who they actually are. Uh -huh. And then that isn't very satisfying. And then it might contribute to 
in this arms race of like, oh no, I'm, you know, uh, prettier or smarter or I have better uh, taste or um, yeah. know, for these experiences um, and I'm worldly, you know, in comparison to other people and it gets competitive. Um, and then that, that's a field day. It, like there are lots of resources for people that do have narcissistic tendencies naturally and it might bring out some of that in, other, in people that are otherwise a little bit hesitant to do it and then feeling trapped like that's the only way you can socialize. So I think I agree with that. small groups, but obviously we can't do that <laughs> right now. Um, so we're having to completely redesign how we connect with people. And so there are things like this, like a podcast um, environment where we're having a conversation with two of us, but I also know that other people are listening to it. Hi, people. Uh, and so that may alter things in a slight direction. Um, yeah, but people are going to be lonely with all of this. And even before all of the self-quarantining was either mandatory or highly recommended, um, most people that I would see in my practice would talk about how disconnected and lonely they feel um, in their social support networks, like people they consider to be friends, how little communication they get back. And it's usually them reaching out, but not always getting, you know, somebody enthusiastically replying um, on a basis that would help them feel validated that they are, you know, priority for them. So what do you think about all of that? Well, I think that your hypothesis on the, the narcissistic co-opting of, of American culture is pretty dead on. That's what I've kind of theorized is it's that kindling effect where traits that were maybe latent were, were made manifest through some sort of a, a kindling, a, a, a kindling of that diathesis or that predisposition. And so you get kind of the fragile narcissists and the, the outright grandiose ones in, in, in greater measure, um, what's being reinforced, right? And so you get kind of a, a so there can be people who have a, a proclivity toward it, a, a tendency toward it on a genetic personality level, which those can be very different, right? It's not, I'm not saying the genetic determinism, but they, they, we know for, for sure the biology contributes to a lot. Um, and then you get people who it's purely acquired because they have to play the game to market and things like that. And then maybe become um, addicted to their own hype. We could see the dopamine release there. So lots to unpack with that. Um, It's, it's what you said, what you said earlier is, is a a good point that I want to go back to of if you're looking for evidence of narcissism, you'll find it. Well, you're right. If you're looking for evidence of something, especially, I mean, if you're looking for it online or, in any place where you can find it through searching terms or through seeing visibility. I mean, people who are good at self-promoting are by nature easier to find so that communities that are better at self-promotion too. So that's a good point. It can be harder to find people who are less resistant to, or who are more resistant to um, trumpeting their own worth, you know, um, mm-hmm. But the the idea of having to demonstrate a, a sort of fa- a facade on social media is one that I've I've talked about at length, and that I think w- on, in a one to one basis with people, and to an extent on the podcast, um, which is in itse- itself kind of a social media construct. So that's funny, 
Um, yeah. It's like making the best of that world and having some authenticity, right? So I think we have far in the la-la land of therapists who are very idealistic and maybe a little too naive, this idea of really being radically authentic all the time. And if you, arm, if you teach your clients that, you're going to harm them because everyone's not safe. And then you have on the other end, the, the perspective of never sharing and being very almost a traumatized perspective of no one being safe at all. And both extremes are very negative because one is like having boundaries that don't let anything in, which an organism dies at that point, or boundaries that are so diffuse as to not constitute a living organism that are just like diffuse and, and evaporate. And so, yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of what I was, um, talking about with someone yesterday about boundaries, kind of explaining the difference between rigid and porous and clear boundaries that, um, you know, someone with rigid boundaries is not accepting of help or they aren't willing to do things for other people. They don't, it's kind of separating yourself um, so that you're preventing, you know, somebody being beholden to other or to the other um, and not relying on others because they may have had experiences where they couldn't rely on somebody else or if they let if they accepted help from someone else, then they would be in, you know, a, a bit of a pickle when they come back for what they think is due. Uh, versus porous boundaries is very communal, and it could work actually if you're a very giving, softy, you know, uh, hardworking person, and you're surrounded by everyone else that is like that too. It could be a functional, interdependent um, kind of. Uh, way of functioning but it clear boundaries usually help the most with you know the average person uh so they were thinking oh well that's healthy boundaries versus unhealthy boundaries and i thought it may depend on who you're around and who's your social support network what kinds of boundaries are appropriate uh for you or most helpful for you absolutely it's all contextual and i think with our therapeutic theories we can see the influence of the times. We can see the Freudian influence of Victorian Austria and, and, and England when it comes to the social distancing there to use that to, when it comes to. That yeah. reminds me, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos about like dangers in the Victorian home and how a lot of the emphasis on not touching other people or putting doilies over vases and extreme obsession with cleanliness was related to the cholera outbreak in, in that era. Um, so that kind of left its imprint in cultural uh, norms, uh, even several generations later. Absolutely. Sorry, side note. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's, that's perfect. That's a great enmeshment there. So tell me how you stumbled across that. That's a really, that's a really interesting niche subject. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> YouTube well, keeps giving me weird things that I click on them. So, <laughs> well, to be honest with you, YouTube can be a great resource. Um, mm -hmm. It can also be a great time waster, just like anything else. Mm -hmm. um, so you can choose what to read, and if you want to read bullcrap, that's fine. But you can also right. read things that give you amazing knowledge. YouTube's exactly the same way. Yeah. So, yeah. And and a trick with that is you see more of what you engage with on algorithm-based platforms like that. So if you don't want to be overwhelmed with a lot of news, stop clicking on it. Scroll past it. Pick something else that is help, more helpful for your mindset or gets, um, gives you a positive distraction. Um, I agree. Don't, it, don't share it um, because if the more you do that, it cultivates what you actually want. 
your experience to be online. Yeah, it does. It, it curates it for you. So um, the culture of narcissism, I thought we were going to talk about the... Yes, thanks for bringing it back. <laughs> no, you're welcome. I don't know. No, that's fine. I, I like this little tangent, but I also want to go into like the, the toilet paper hoarding, which is just hilariously <laughs> abysmal. That's, that's a particular, you know, consumable that people were trying to make sure they have enough of. Um, what are your, are you a prepper at all? <laughs> I enjoy the show Doomsday Preppers, but only for satirical purposes. Oh, okay. um, well, I mean, I have approximately two and a half weeks worth of things I could eat if I really needed to one week Good. of actual meals. Um, and I have nine rolls of toilet paper. I've not bought any since they, uh, since they came out with, you know, restrictions or stay at home orders when things started to get really serious with COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, you know what I think it is though, is I think at least here in Florida, we're used to having hurricane season and, and it's kind of necessary to have three days worth of water, food, and other supplies that you'll need. Um, yeah. Under the assumption that you'll be holed up at home, can't go outside at all for yes. supply season. Um, yes. And so I think that many people here took that perspective that if, say, we went on lockdown for two weeks, what does that mean? Uh, I think many people assume that they wouldn't have access to the grocery store. Um, and so tried to prepare for that. But this is a nationwide situation. I think it's kind of related to the bank runs, like in the Great Depression. Oh, some people took out money from the bank. Maybe I should take money out from the bank. Oh, everybody's taking any money out from the bank. We need to get there now so that we all get our money before it all closes down. And then it closed down. And some people went without. Um, so I think that ripple effect and that exponential response related to toilet paper is what occurred this time. 100%. So you feel more comforted having a large quantity and that takes up a large volume. Uh, like, oh, I'm safe. I've got this big thing around yeah. that is necessary supplies. That's a good interpretation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what have you noticed in this transition from in-person to teletherapy? And what are you, what are you doing with clients now? What is your CBT practice focusing on? I mean, I just basically want to open up the discourse here to how you are handling this with clients, what it looks like, any tips. I know just a little subject there, right? Just a very small, no big deal. In COVID okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, Huge deal. I just noticed a high rate of activation. There's more communication between people, um, a lot of news to keep up with. And so a lot of people are overwhelmed with how many changes are occurring and also the bulk of information that they feel is very necessary to get Absolutely. through. A lot of people are concerned for their relatives um, and, you know, fearing for their own lives, especially if they're in a higher risk category or immunocompromised age range. Um, yeah. So I think that it helps to get the facts. Um, you know, obviously this is something that we need to take very seriously. Not everybody has caught on yet that that's you know, necessary, um, but not to sacrifice your mental well-being in the name of taking every single precaution possible. Um, and I, I've gone through my own process with that. Um, you know, as, as I learned more, 
you know, that it can live on surfaces. Uh, I had the urge, I want to wipe down every surface in my home with, you know, something like at least bleach water. But then I realized that would not be sustainable to keep up. And actually the stress level that that would cause trying to keep everything like hermetically sealed 100% of the time, it's not doable. So there's diminishing returns on effort and certain actions compared to, you know, your lowering of your risk. There's not going to be zero risk of me getting infected because um, I am, you know, my spouse is an essential worker and will be continuing to work in, in, um, in person. Uh, so I'm just very determined not to spread it. And um, I'm kind of accepting that it may be inevitable I'll be exposed. But also, if I were exposed, which is a 40% chance of the worldwide population, uh, for me personally, there's a 90% chance that I'll be asymptomatic or have a low level of symptoms. And then there's a 10% chance that it would be more serious, possibly needing hospitalization, possibly death. Um, and, and there's less than a 2% chance of um, you know, the average population of dying from it. So of course we wanna minimize um, the damage not to take unnecessary risks, but uh, making sure that you don't get coughed on or <laughs> sneezed on, that's number one. Staying six feet away from other people, uh, especially those you don't live with, that's number two. Uh, avoiding gathering places, even if you are six feet away from each other, that might be kind of high risk, washing your hands a lot, um, but maybe if you're home and things are clean and there's nobody going in and out of the door, maybe you can let your guard down a little bit more. Um, but as far as sanitizing and disinfecting everything all the time, like waiting 24 hours to open up a box of essential supplies from Amazon, um, that yeah. may be going a little bit far. It may I would be agree. worth it to expend that level of effort. Yeah. Um, this could be it could be months, it could be up to a year and a half before a vaccination is widely available. So we'll need to be careful, and this is a marathon, not a sprint. Wow, good thoughts. Where did you, and I'm not interrogating you here, I'm legitimately <laughs> curious, where did you, where, how do you figure that there 90% chance you'd be asymptomatic? Like, what is that? That, that is a good point. Um, I, would, I would say it's necessary to double check those statistics. Um, I can't verify that all of my sources were. No, you're fine. But I mean, is it based on your age demographic or non-smoker status or something? Yeah, I'm a non-smoker. I'm young. I don't have any lung problems or major health problems. Um, I'm really lucky and fortunate with that. And, and I'm very careful um, for the sake of the community because there are, you know, I wouldn't want to spread it to somebody who does have anything that could increase their risk. Um, and so I'm doing my part, telecommuting, um, providing online therapy, and let's see. Uh, and so about half of people that are testing positive for the antibodies, as far as I know, uh, didn't experience symptoms. And then 80% okay. of the people that did experience symptoms usually have mild symptoms for someone in my demographics. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's very similar to what I've heard. Um, are you, so with clients, you're walking them through the sort of importance of, it's a tightrope walk, right? So the importance mm -hmm. of preparation and being mm -hmm. responsible, but also of not being consumed with it, which <laughs> is difficult not to be when your brain is yeah. attributing the reason that you're home 
And this is new. Yes. This is weird. Most of us are not adjusted to this yet. No. No, and we'll see where that goes and how much people will have to get adjusted to it because it's not a foregone, foregone conclusion that it's going to continue the lockdown, whether or not that's healthy to, for it, for it to um, lift, which people mm-hmm. are saying either way. I mean, but, mm-hmm. but the, the, the statistics tell a story that emotional worry doesn't. And again, it's very important not to downplay it because people can go to different extremes. So I think what you're describing, what you were talking about earlier, is people who have different reactions to it, there's kind of a denial on the Mm -hmm. part of people who are younger and potentially just carriers versus people who would really die of it or experience the worst of it. Um, and you kind of see those, those videos of people celebrating spring break and God, that that's not a good thing. Take a note that most of those people were not Floridians. They may have been out of state, you know, uh, college students, spring break. Probably. Well, and I mean, that's just people it's, it's rough because I've heard people say this before that when they're, when they were younger, they were really glad that this sort of technology didn't exist because you could have said something that becomes memorialized forever. And so someone saying something like, if I get it, I get it. It's like, well, that's a few years from now when you, hopefully when you've developed some more frontal lobe capacity there, that won't look so hot to have said. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there's, there's coverage of people saying, I don't mind if I get sick. Oh yeah. Um, there's a video of a, of a guy, presumably like 21 or younger who, is saying, look, we're not going to avoid spring break. We had this plan and they and came out to Florida mm-hmm. and the, a, a, a woman, a young woman who says, um, you know, all the places are closed and it's really ruining our spring break, which the sort of self-focus on your own break versus a, a, a not nationwide international pandemic mm-hmm is somewhat telling on it. So like you don't really need much context to that. There's certain things where it just sounds bad no matter what, and you can try to rationalize it, but it doesn't go very far. And they might've chosen a different way to put it if they uh, were fully acknowledging, you know, other contexts. Right. Exactly. So denial is a a response. Um, Hyper identification with the problem is another response. And you get these kind of dual opposing spectrums here. Um, people who are already neat freaks, this just gives them more rationalization and hoarding. I'm just thinking how much more hoarders are going to have (laughs) some kind of a justification here to say, well, what if the COVID crisis happens again? Remember that? Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I would guess that there would be an uptick in OCD symptoms or uh, agoraphobia and hoarding. Um, And one thing that's come up is that there are ways to treat anxiety, but I think that this is a legitimate, uh, understandable, and rational fear, actually. Absolutely, yes. Because there is a real threat that we need to minimize the impact of it, Um, and so that can be very stressful. But the stress is also uh, mobilizing you and energizing you to do the things that you need to do, and so it's good to kind of look at what you have control over, what you don't have control over, uh, kind of like the area of concern versus the area of action, and think what is the best thing for me to do? Let's create an action plan. 
Um, yeah, and so doing your best, washing your hands, staying out of public uh, or around other people whenever possible, um, and taking care of yourself probably is the you know primary steps to take. But not everybody has a clean home to live in or a sure. loving, supporting family unit. There's you know lots of conflicted families or not enough room for people. A lot of people started this out with no money or resources or food, and they are really in a difficult situation now, uh, left hanging and not you know no foreseeable clear way that uh, to care for themselves. And so I'm, I'm very concerned. I was thinking. You know, people that are homeless um, may be especially vulnerable because there's not as many people out on the street, um, you know, to ask for support if, if they if they need it too. And, and so for people that society has given the cold shoulder and it was difficult already, I really feel for everyone. Um, and, you know, I want to do whatever I can. That's awesome. I was going to ask, what are you... How, how are you helping clients? What are you telling them to do to get connected if they're not? And this is not, again, me interrogating you. I'm, I'm dealing with this in my clinical practice of moving things online and talking to clients about how to, how to stay sane, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's tough. Um, thankfully, most of my clients have been willing to switch over to telehealth um, and, and doing video sessions. Um, I'm pretty familiar with how that goes because uh, I'm part-time private practice building up to full-time and okay. the part of the time I do better help actually. Um, and so that's very flexible and I'm very fortunate to have two income streams and one, you know, gives new client referrals with the press of a button, honestly. And so that's backup plan B if, you know, anything happened with my private practice, if I had too low of a demand. Um, but is, that's, is it better help? Huh? It's called better help. Is that what you're saying? I've heard of that before. Tell us a little bit about that for anyone who doesn't know though. Um, yeah, it's a really great resource. Um, it's a monthly subscription service where you can um, message and do instant text uh, sessions, phone calls, and my preference, uh, video calls with a licensed counselor. Um, and I think it's pretty great. It's really convenient and it enables for the therapist or the counselor to send worksheets um, that can help build insight and you know process and explore uh, different mental health topics. It allows you to schedule your own sessions uh, based off of their availability, um, and it's very it's very easy to get started and connect. And yeah, I really like it. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. So I know how that goes. And so my expectations going into switching my clients that I see in in-person over to video, um, some, uh, some therapists kind of hold themselves back maybe in a way because they have doubts of whether or not it's as effective. Um, they may have biases like, oh, it's not as good. This is a lesser of the options to give them. And so that kind of comes through and maybe they're seeing less progress in their sessions because of that expectation or maybe it might be on the client side like ugh, i don't like this format um there could be sometimes uh some barriers to treatment with it though um like if everybody if a whole family is home uh privacy can be difficult to come by um and and they may not feel as comfortable talking about deeper subjects if they feel like they may be within view or in within earshot of somebody else sometimes um you know, dedicating a room off to themselves uh, for their sessions can be helpful. 
or uh, you know many people resort to going in the car if they have a lot of roommates or um, they, they really want privacy from their families. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you miss the in-person aspects of it though and you know being able to show people on the whiteboard like different ideas and talking about it um you know having a nice fluffy blanket for them to snuggle with like that and you know kind of scent diffusers that, that environment it's a little bit harder to create that create that coziness that so, gets yeah the, the thing about emdr is it's really good for tele telehealth like oh, yeah. you can you know the hand movement is something you can see on screen and you can have clients tap on their own legs back and forth um, mm. because that's something you can do clinically is have clients do that in an office. So if they, if you have them do that themselves in office, you can have them do that themselves um, over, over zoom. Um, yeah. Of course you can use hand movement as well. Uh, you can see clients reactions. You can see if they're starting to dissociate, you can, you can witness that visually so thankfully, there's not a whole lot that's lost in terms of nuance because uh, with, with EMDR, there's a lot of visual cues um, that, that you go by and auditory as well, but visual, like there's, that's, you really need that as a clinician. So um, yeah, I was very interested in your opinion on whether or not EMDR is amenable for doing through telehealth. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that there's some hope that it is. Um, and so you're able to do the the PSL, like the bilateral stimulation with their eyes, um, with you guiding them and them tracking your fingers on the screen? Yeah, it is very amenable to the telehealth sort of revolution that we're having right now because EMDR already, the EMDR International Association, EMDRIA, it's usually pronounced outright. Um, I like it. Yeah, so EMDRIA created some competencies slightly before this, I think even last year, maybe, um, they were working toward, because it is such a, a, a visual modality mm -hmm. and a lot of practitioners have been asking for some definitives to make it, you know, to make sure they're complying with the orthodoxy of Imdria. So it is completely acceptable and, um, 100% ethical to do it online. And, it's not preferable in terms of having a literal safe space for people to be in, but it's mm -hmm. about as close to the, EMDR is as, as close to the ideal teletherapy form that I would know as a therapist. And I'm, I'm not being, I'm trying not to be biased. I mean, I am because yeah. I'm an EMDR practitioner, but if you think about DBT, okay, that's fine. You can teach someone how to breathe in, on, on video. That's great. Um, but the visual element of EMDR is so powerful and it's something that you can do over video. Now I would want to make sure with someone who had some extreme um, mental sort of dissociative tendencies to be very careful going into it when you're not in the room able to have like sense things for them to smell, you know, lavender, you're not able to really have control over it, their safety if, if they're in their home and they're you can't prevent them from doing something self self-harming i mean that's terrible but for anything but but in that case i would say just do more prep okay just do more of the yeah. prep phase of emdr it's literally the phase of teaching them resources but apart from that apart from severe dissociation um i think telehealth is pretty equivocal in terms of its efficacy with EMDR. Again, though, I'm saying that it, it requires more safety planning on the front end, but once you've got that, then it really is 
pretty spot on and, and that's cause for client um, celebration and for, for their confidence. There's some real yeah. buy in there. Yeah. So just, um, you know, keep in mind um, the level of risk and in the assessment phase, um, you know, be sure to screen for severe uh, dissociation or perhaps self-harm urges um, or the risk of app reactions when you're doing the, you know, bilateral stimulation. So the only thing that made me question in the first place is when I went through the basic training, um, I was trained that when you are performing the, the movements that you want to try to get their eye movements to the furthest end of their field of vision, like all the way at this corner of their eye and back. And so I was wondering if that was possible on a computer screen, if we would have them be much closer to it than usual, or if that's recommended, but not essential for the desensitization phase to be effective. It's recommended. We know horizontal eye movements are what really activate the delta wave response in the brain that makes memories more pliable. I would say that, yeah, being closer to the screen or having the client maximize the window here, like we're on Zoom here and I don't have it full view. I have it mostly full. So now I have it full view. And if I kind of look at it or maybe come closer, it goes back and forth. And you can have clients, you can have it be a cue where you, you have them follow your hand, but then the rest of the way, just say back and forth all the way. Again, you watch them to see that their eyes are going all the way that way. So there's, there's workarounds for that, to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, and that's a great, and so the HAP thing, it's very good for you to keep those essentials and those sort of recommend, and, and on top of that, the, the recommended things in mind. Yeah. Um, and that's what, honestly, too, we know that tapping, so I have some hand buzzers that go back and forth. We know that that, so we know from studies that the tactile stimulation is also very effective. And so well, if you have really clients, do prefer that too. Again, if you have them do the back and forth, the, the butterfly hug, as it's affectionately called, you can have people do that. And that doesn't require eye movement to one side or the other. So you can get creative with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about the online tool, Easy EMDR, where it's basically a square and then it, you can pick the color and how fast it goes back and forth on the screen. And then uh, in between um, them telling you the associations that come up, um, having them initiate that on their end. Do you think that that would be something that you would recommend or? What a great question. I think as long as the clinician is there supervising and uh, so for one thing, I mean, you can't see, so I would have the client screen share on Zoom at this point. And this is where it becomes a technological barrier yeah. if people aren't really that familiar with it. A little bit to learn, yeah. Yeah, a little bit to learn. So I would have them screen share and see what they're doing and watch their face, but I don't see any. So asking that is very similar to like, well, can clients tap on their own? Well, yes, if I'm super, if the clinician is supervising and seeing that the client is going back and forth on their legs or whatever, and you, you say, okay, now take a moment, let's breathe, come back, tell me what you noticed. Okay, follow that as we do in EMDR, right? If they're doing that, then fine. You know, I don't see any problem with that at all. On the clinical level, there would seem to be none where it would seem to be fine for clients to activate and watch the stuff on their own. And then we can say, okay, let's stop for a moment, blink, take a breath. Now, what are you noticing? That's the exact same thing as the, product, the standard protocol. 
Yeah. It's just, they're literally pressing the button and you're not. I mean, that, if you, that's, that's a real power thing. It's like, that can be very empowering for clients to actually be the one starting and stopping it mm, themselves. But we're the ones who are saying when to do it. We have to do that, not as a matter of control, but as a matter of responsible sort of tethering to the present. Cause we, we yeah. clinicians want to watch for any, tearfulness any stuff doesn't mean we stop because sometimes that's helpful that that's them processing it but we don't want them to stick in stuff for too long and mm -hmm. get stuck so that the answer yeah. is yes i think that those kind of tools can be very helpful and so in clinician the hands, is, uh, the one that's initiating and controlling the timing 100 percent, yes then it's totally just another tool um yeah. I've, those kind of things on their own those apps i've had people ask me well can i do this on my own and i've said no like well I, if, if people don't, don't, if people want an answer as to why it's like you're doing, and this is a, a flawed metaphor, admittedly, mm. but the, the metaphor of kind of doing surgery on yourself or doing yeah. something, it, well, a better metaphor would be, it's like swimming somewhere dangerous when, or, or hiking somewhere dangerous when you don't have a buddy. It's like, we know that 99% mm. of the time, maybe it's like, oh, well, that's fine. You know, the way you can, you can process it. But what about that 1%? What about that? Like, 120 hours movie what about the guy who got stuck in real life didn't have a hiking buddy and had to you know amputate his hand it's like well on those off chances like you you you're savvy you know the process because i've had some very very intelligent clever clients who've wanted to do this stuff on their own it's like well I read the book i'm ready <laughs> no, the right. no aip <laughs> exactly uh, and it's not just about head knowledge and that's the thing is for for very intellectual clients i have to say look you and i both love theory we both geek out over this but here's the thing mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to happen emotionally in your limbic system when this stuff goes and and i'm not there to help Un unblock those sort of, and to remove, in other words, those those blocks to processing. So limiting, blocking beliefs. There's that CBT again that can get in the way of the cycle of reprocessing. I'm not there to troubleshoot with you. There's no but. You, no one in. No therapist is there. So that's yeah. why we say no. Yeah. So at best, you know, doing something like that on their own could be used as a coping skill, but it could go very wrong. And it absolutely considered EMDR self-administered. Self-EMDR is not a good thing to go for. Um, self-administered coping skills like resources are 100% always a good thing to go for. Calm yeah. place, container, all that stuff. Those are great. There's never a problem. It's when people start doing the protocol and messing around with their with trauma on their own because it's very powerful emotions that can be brought up by EMDR. We know that that's what the methodology is, is it's strong emotional reprocessing of the trauma. And so by its very nature and definition, you don't want someone playing around with that on their own without any sort of supervision, even if it's screen to screen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jeremy. I feel like that increases my confidence and, and willingness to, you know, do EMDR through telehealth. Yeah, well it should. I mean, here's the deal. If you if you care about messing clients up, you've already like that's half the thing there as you you have a clinical sensibility. It's it's half the struggle. You're aware of your own capacity for it to go wrong. But just like any other therapeutic modality, when you notice clients cycling the same 
cognitive drain, so to speak, of, well, I've never good enough. It's, it's happened. I'm not going to survive this. You have them, you, you unplug from that trauma matrix, so to speak. You have them yeah. do some breathing and then you, you say, okay, we're going to, we're going to put this in your container. Notice that you have the ability to put away these thoughts and, and you can, you can clinically use your, your instinct and your, and, and not all in a fluffy sort of ethereal way, but your capacity to see when clients are decompensating and you can put the brakes on right? So if you've been trained in it and you know the stuff, then it's helpful to use it with clients. True. And yeah. And be aware that you'll know when there's a certain sort of negative reliving. Yeah. Discussing it further, I realized that I'm comparing ideal to some benefit uh, yeah. versus when I really, I should be looking at no benefit versus some benefit. There is a net gain and no harm done. Um, in, in, you know, providing EMDR, even if you're not an expert at it yet, so long as so, you know well enough, then that's the key factor. And you can't be an expert on it until you get certified and then become a consultant, which I'm grateful right. to have done that. So you can't, you have to practice it and not in an unethical way on clients. I would say screen for dissociation. The dissociative experiences scale is really good for that. The DES and yeah. it's free. I think it's open source and it's out there online. Um, it, barring clients having complex PTSD and or dissociative um, tendencies where they go into the trauma actively when they're, when they're upset and they, don't can't maintain dual awareness of trauma and present and they go all the way in the trauma but what you have to do at that point is really help them develop greater coping and greater capacity to stay in the present with the negative memories but then still you can go into really the big thing is to have someone as a consultant or a, a, that you that you get supervision from and in private practice i get that that can be difficult i i've been i, I um, with my agency work, I got supervision for free for working there. And, and so you just have to have somebody who you're reporting to who you can bring this stuff to. Yeah. Yeah. I think in um, taking my private practice from part-time to full-time, I've been running what I like to call a lean startup and I'd That's rather invest time than money, but this I think is a worthy cause um, to really hone my skills and um, be really good at what I do and provide a higher quality service. Um, yeah, this is the kind of thing I want to be doing. Pretty awesome. Okay, so we can wrap up. If there's anything you want to let people know about where to find you or your business, go ahead and uh, shoot that out. Yeah, I think the best place to learn more about my background, my clinical approach, and contact information is my Psychology Today listing for Julie yeah. Baker, um, LMFT, um, in the Tampa Bay area. I am... Uh, licensed both in California and Florida, so I'm able to provide telehealth to any California or Florida resident, so long as they are safe uh, to receive uh, telehealth therapy. Yeah. And um, yeah. yeah, so I'm. If you're interested, feel free to reach out to me. Um, my business line is eight one three four four five three five two zero. Um, and again, I specialize in CBT with teens and young adults with additional clinical interests of treating eating disorders, anxiety, depression, trauma. Um, also interested in hoarding, narcissistic abuse, cult abuse. And wow. Yeah. yeah. We didn't so, even get to the narcissistic to, abuse today. To do a follow-up. Um, yeah, and my website is engagetodaytherapy.com. Good. Um, yeah, I'll link yep. to that. Okay. Well, 
Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. It was really fun talking to you and, and learning more and exchanging ideas. Uh, absolutely.